You're listening to the sermon cast of First Presbyterian Church Spartanburg. To watch the full video of this worship service and to learn more about the ministries of our church, visit us online at fpcspartanburg.org. We hope you enjoy the message. As we continue in our worship, we turn our attention to the New Testament. We began last week a sermon series that will lead us through the month of December up until Christmas, a series that we are calling, Do You Hear What I Hear? Each week we're visiting a different one of the Gospels and taking a look at how each of the Gospels tells the story of the Incarnation a little differently. We began last week with the Gospel of Mark, and this week we turn to the Gospel of Matthew. So let us continue listening now for a word from God as we hear these verses from the first chapter of Matthew, beginning with the 18th verse. Matthew writes, Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet who had written, Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took Mary as his wife, but had no marital relations with her until she had borne a son, and he named him Jesus. Friends, this too is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Will you join me in prayer? Let us pray. Good and gracious God, send your spirit to fill this space. Send your spirit, O God, that we might catch a vision, your vision, for the living of these days. Indeed, O God, we pray that through the work of your spirit, the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts gathered together here in your sight would be glorifying and pleasing to you. For you and you alone are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You know, it seems to me that Joseph might very well be the most backseat character in the whole story of the Incarnation. In fact, I've always wanted to preach a sermon series during Advent on Joseph, but I've never quite mustered the courage, mainly due to the fact that there's just so little material to work with. 18 verses, that's all you get about Joseph across all of the Gospels, right? Last week we were in Mark and we learned that Mark says nothing about Joseph because Mark begins the story of Jesus with Jesus as a grown man out in the Judean wilderness being baptized in the river Jordan by his cousin John. Speaking of John, in John's gospel, we get some references to Jesus being the son of Joseph, but no stories 
directly telling us anything about Joseph. Luke gives us a smattering of details, but only Matthew, of all the four Gospels, Matthew alone seems to be the one who wants to deal with Joseph as being something a little bit more than just a footnote. And even then, we only get 10 verses in Matthew about Joseph, Jesus's earthly father. And the bulk of those verses are in this reading that we've just read, but there's just enough detail there. There's just enough detail to make me think that Matthew wants to make a point. There's just enough detail to make me think that when Matthew looks at Joseph, He thinks that there is something for us to understand in his story that will help us understand the story of Jesus himself, right? Because both Matthew and Luke and their telling of the Christmas story make clear that Jesus came into the world just like all of us as a baby. And coming into the world in that manner means that just like all of us, Jesus had to grow up. He had to be shaped in the way each of us are shaped by the people and places and experiences, both good and hard, that life brings. He had to be shaped by the environment around him. So I think that Matthew looks at Joseph and he thinks there are glimpses of Jesus and the glimpses of Joseph. That if we pay attention to Joseph's story, no matter how little there is of it, then we might begin to understand Jesus's story in a new light. Take, for example, just a few verses after where we finish, we learn in Matthew's gospel that Joseph is a carpenter. Now, the technical word that Matthew uses is tecton, which is a particular type of carpenter. It's someone who works with wood, It's a specialty craft, to be sure, but it's not really that special. I mean, Joseph is not introduced to us in Matthew's gospel as being an architecton. Y'all hear that, by the way? Architect? Architecton? A master craftsman? That's not Joseph. Which strikes me as odd, because I imagine God, right, with a long list of all the resumes that have been submitted from his angels or HR department or whoever, for potential candidates to be the very father of Jesus on earth. You have to imagine that on that list, there are names like priest and scribe. Maybe there's surgeon or lawyer. Right? Maybe a celebrity or a money manager. You have to imagine that there are far more credentialed people ahead of Joseph before you get to Tecton as being a candidate to be the parent, the very earthly father of the word made flesh. Y'all remember the story from 1 Samuel? where Samuel, an old prophet by this point, he goes to Jesse's home. God sends him to Jesse's home to anoint a new king who will follow Saul. And Jesse does what any parent will do. He parades out in front of Samuel all of the sons of his family, right? There's the handsome one and the strong one and the intellectual one and the entrepreneurial one, all of these strong candidates to be the king of Israel. But after each one in turn, Samuel says, nope, not it. And finally, they get through all the sons, and Samuel says, "Um, are there any others? And Jesse says, well, I mean, yeah, there's the one out in the field, right? The youngest, the runt, 
Surely not him. Samuel says, bring him. And then walks who? David. Right? This is not the first time when we get to Joseph's story that God has demonstrated a propensity to look beyond the resume, to look underneath the surface, to look first and foremost at what? The heart. And it's not going to be the last time either because Jesus grows up in this house with Joseph as his dad. And sure enough, when Jesus gets out into his adult ministry, he starts doing crazy things. He starts looking beyond the resume and under the surface. He starts looking up into trees and saying things like Zacchaeus, tax collector, hated among his community. Zacchaeus, come down. For today, I'm going to stay in your house. Jesus starts going out into these other wildernesses and he meets women by the well, one woman in particular, a Samaritan woman, and not just a Samaritan woman, but a woman who has been divorced five times. And he offers her living water. I mean, even on a cross, Jesus will look down at a criminal And I'll say to him, truly, truly I tell you today, you, criminal, will be with me in paradise. We get glimpses of Jesus, don't we? And these glimpses of Joseph. I mean, just look at the verses that we've read today. There's that great detail where after Joseph learns that Mary is with child by the Holy Spirit, uh uh-huh, Joseph decides that he's going to what? He's going to dismiss her quietly. It's an interesting little add-on. He's going to dismiss her, but quietly. I got curious this week, and I went looking for um, uh, information about uh, marriage laws in uh, the ancient world, particularly ancient Palestine, And I learned something I had already known. Many of us probably have heard something akin to it. It, It's like the dowry that would come later in medieval times. But there was a transaction and a transactional nature to marriage. Money was usually exchanged, right? So the groom's family would typically pay what was effectively a dowry to the bride's family. And there was a very practical reason for it. Because when the bride left her family's home and moved into the groom's family's home. Well, that's one less set of hands, one less person in that house to do work, to help survive, right? It wasn't about building up your 401k. I mean, it was survival. To have a person in your house meant that you had extra labor around. So the groom's family would make a payment to the bride's family. But what I learned that I had not known that I thought was really interesting was that it was also traditional for the groom to make a payment directly to the bride, It was almost like a life insurance policy. It was money that was sort of held in trust. And that money was being held in trust in the event that the groom divorced his wife later on or more likely that the groom died. That there would be money that the bride herself would have to help make sure that she could survive after the groom. Now imagine a scenario like this one painted early on in this passage. We learn that Mary is pregnant, but not with Joseph's child. 
Which way do you think the money is going to travel when that news gets out? You better believe Mary's family is going to be sending checks back over to Joseph's family. But even deeper than that, I mean, Mary is going to carry such disgrace, I think, is the word that is in these verses. I mean, she's going to carry the stigma with her. These are small communities. Word don't have to travel far. But we're told that Joseph dismisses her quietly. You know, I think that that means that Joseph probably was just going to tell the community that he changed his mind. Listen, I, I don't think I'm ready to go through with this after all. Two things would happen as a result of that. A, the money, it stays with Mary. It ain't coming back. There's a financial piece to this decision for Joseph. But even more remarkable to me is that what that means is that Joseph is going to bear all that shame and all that disgrace. For the rest of his life, his neighbors are going to be like, there's Joseph. You remember what he did to poor Mary? (sighs) Can't trust him. I mean, this is amazing stuff. And then follow the arc of the story through to the end of these verses. Joseph decides to dismiss her quietly at the start, but by the end, he decides to accept God's call to raise this child as his own. I mean, this is amazing stuff because it tells us how much Joseph trusts God. Right? Joseph almost certainly still had some doubts. I heard someone say that Joseph has been called by some to be the patron saint of doubters, right? Even after God comes to him, listen, Joseph, I know it's not your kid. It's God's kid. Huh? Okay. Surely there was still something in the back of his mind like, I don't know. But he trusts God enough to accept God's call to raise this child. And he shows Mary mercy, forgiveness. And then he loves Jesus like he is his own. Listen again to that. Joseph trusts, he forgives, and he loves. Does that remind you all of anyone else? We catch glimpses of Jesus in these glimpses of Joseph. Now listen, I think that we need those front seat characters to this story as well. Jesus foremost amongst them, of course. But we need the other examples that are laid out in the stories of Christ's birth, especially in Matthew and Luke's Gospels. We need Mary, we need Elizabeth, we need Zechariah, we need the stories of the Magi and the shepherds. These are all important stories that help to guide our story, to set an example for what a life of faith and discipleship can look like. But I would argue that Matthew's telling of the Christmas story is meant to remind us that we also need Joseph's story. It's to remind us that the world needs Joseph's too. We need people who lead lives that reflect this bedrock trust in God's direction for their life and for the world. 
We need people who show this uncharacteristic mercy and forgiveness that Joseph shows Mary. We need people foremost who, like Joseph, will love a child and children who is not and are not their own. The world needs Joseph's as much as the world needs Mary's and shepherds and magi. You know, one of the patron saints of our congregation and of our community is the Reverend Dr. Kirk Neely. I think many of us probably know Kirk. Kirk spent decades in Spartanburg pastoring different congregations. In his retirement, he actually came and served as a pastoral counselor for our congregation. Kirk is one of the most incredible people that I have had the gift of knowing, and he's probably worshiping with us. I know he and Claire worship with us online nearly every Sunday. And I don't think he would mind me sharing this story. I visited Kirk earlier this year, a few months ago, when he was hospitalized briefly. And we were visiting and talking, and as we're talking, there's a knock on the door, and a a woman uh, from the cleaning crew at the hospital walks in, and she begins sanitizing the surfaces and just cleaning up around Kirk's room. Now, if you know Kirk, you know that no one goes unnoticed by Kirk Neely. So sure enough, I start to notice Kirk's eyes are sort of wandering over my shoulder. He's watching this woman, and he tells her, "Uh, ma'am, we were just about to pray, Alan and I. I didn't know we were about to pray, but we were about to pray. (laughs) And Kirk says to her, "Uh, would you tell us your name? Tell us about your family. How can we be praying for you? So sure enough, she says, uh, my name's Kathy. Clearly, this isn't a typical interaction for her in patients' rooms, but she tells us her name is Kathy. And she says, well, I mean, I'd appreciate prayers for my children. I'd really appreciate prayers for my mom, actually. She's going through a really hard time. We talk for a little bit, and a few minutes later, there we are holding hands around Kirk's bedside and... I start to pray, and when you pray with Kirk, you know Kirk's going to pray too, and Kirk is a prayer. Golly. So I finish my prayer, and Kirk pauses, and Kirk begins to pray, saying, thank you, God, for Kathy. Thank you, God, for Kathy. She cleans these rooms, and some people notice her, and some people don't. But God, her cleaning helps to keep us safe. It helps us to heal. She sweeps us, oh God, closer to you. She sweeps us closer to you. What an image. Listen, right? Jesus is God. That's the mystery of the incarnation. Jesus is fully divine. But Jesus is also fully human. Jesus comes into the world like us. Jesus had to grow up like us. And I can't help but wonder if Matthew is trying to point out for us the fact that Joseph, Joseph was someone in Jesus' life who swept him a little bit closer to his eternal father, the creator God. I can't help but wonder if maybe Matthew is trying to lift up the fact for all of us that Joseph was someone who taught Jesus to see others how Kirk 
saw Kathy. Joseph was someone who taught Jesus to see each person he would encounter in his life and in his ministry, even to the point of death, looking down on that criminal hanging beside him, to see each person as someone with a story, someone in search of meaning and purpose, someone worthy of love and gratitude and listening to. What are we calling this series? Do you hear what I hear? Maybe the better way that we could think of this is do we hear what Joseph heard? Because friends, Joseph heard, didn't he? He heard what God was saying to him in that vision. Do we hear like Joseph hears, I wonder? Now, I want to confess I've been struggling a little bit with this series in this Advent season because the Advent purists amongst us would rightfully note that Advent is a season on the liturgical calendar for the Christian church of waiting, of patience, of expectation. This is not a season for reading the Christmas story. Advent, in its purest sense, has long been a time, in fact, when we wait and anticipate not necessarily the birth of Christ, but the return of Christ. I had a mentor in ministry, I think I've said this once before, who said, you know, Advent is the time when Christians, we stand on our tippy toes and we look over the head of Christmas to that day when Christ will return. And friends, Christ will return again. So I've been struggling with this. Is it really right to be reading these Christmas stories before we get to the real party? That's Christmas, right? That's two Sundays away, though. Shouldn't we be doing something a little bit different with our time? But then I got to thinking about what we do in our house, and I suspect what you all do in your homes whenever you host a party. What do you all do, right? I know in our house, someone gets tasked with cleaning the windows, Someone else wipes down the counters. I'm trying not to look at my wife because I know she's probably thinking, yeah, what do you do? (laughs) Right? Someone's got to go pick up all that clutter in our basement, all those Legos, and shove them into a closet somewhere where no one will be likely to look. But you know what else we usually do? We usually go to the, the pantry and we pull down a broom. And what do you do? Start sweeping those floors. Friends, it's true. The party is still two weeks away, two Sundays away. But I can't help but wonder if the example of Joseph in Matthew's gospel is not meant to be a reminder for us all that it's never too early to start sweeping others towards the good news of a God made flesh, of a light and love that burns now and always. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.